0: John chapter 8, you can turn there. When you came in, you should have gotten one of our our newest installment of our our booklets for the series of John. This is number 6, if you can believe it. We've been in this series that we've been calling Believe. Now for for almost a year, you can use these booklets for, for taking notes in the sermon. I know that's like a novelty for some of you, but that's allowed to take notes. You can also use them for uh, personal devotions, take them to your community group. They have discussion questions, and they also have readings in there that are, that are really good. But we're up to, to John chapter 8. The, the students, as you know, we're, we're, we're kind of highlighting student ministries a bit this morning. They had an 80s party this week, um, and all this 80s nostalgia got me thinking, I don't know if you remember this, the Pepsi Challenge. Pepsi versus Coke. And this was spearheaded by Pepsi. It was their effort to show that that not only were Coke and Pepsi different, but Pepsi was was better. And it was a futile challenge. Do we all say amen to that? Okay, it was a futile challenge. But but the idea was that Coke and Pepsi looked exactly the same on the outside. They were the same color, they were the same texture. They kind of smell the same. They look the same when you poured them out on the hot sidewalk, but in order to tell which one was real and which one was not, you had to what? Taste the difference to determine. And, and, the, and the Bible is, is very concerned about this same issue, but when it comes to faith, how do we know the difference between true faith and false faith? Fake faith, authentic faith real faith, counterfeit faith. See, in a, in a, in a room this size, I, I would imagine most of you have probably made some sort of profession of faith. You see, in a church this size, everyone can sort of look the same on the outside. We can say the same things. We can even do some of the same things. We can go through confirmation class together or catechism class Or the youth trip like we were hearing about. Or be baptized or participate in the trust fall at the youth retreat and pray a prayer or sign a card. In other words, in our culture particularly, it can be very easy to make a profession of faith. I remember my mom always talking to me about the first time she was baptized. Isn't that that your testimony? Like the first time I was baptized of the nine times I was baptized. But the first time my mom was baptized, she would tell you, I had no idea why I was being baptized. Just all my friends were coming to the front of the church and making a profession of faith and walking the aisle, and I don't know why I went. Maybe it was to see some boy, or maybe the, maybe the people were, 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 contempt, were, were putting pressure on me. But nonetheless, I didn't know what I was doing. And I think R.C. Sproul, who recently went to be with the Lord, by the way, makes a very, very helpful distinction for us when it comes to this idea of genuine faith. RC says that a profession of faith, making a profession of faith, does not necessarily mean that you have possession of faith. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, it might be, it might be that as a part of your profession, you might maybe have genuine faith, but what he's saying is not necessarily. And that's why we find the scripture filled with all sorts of, of warnings about this, don't we? Jesus himself, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And this issue of genuine faith, biblical faith, telling the real from the false, the fake from the counterfeit, it's what Jesus is addressing in our text this morning in John chapter 8. Remember, this is six months before Jesus goes to the cross. And he goes to the cross. He's crucified by angry, hostile men and authorities, principally because of what he says in this very address. John spends two chapters, verse 7 and 8, chapter 7 and 8, highlighting these discourses, these sermons, these sayings, these debates that Jesus has been getting in with the Jewish leaders and the people of Jerusalem at the, at the Feast of the Booths at the temple, And the clearer that Jesus becomes about who he is, we see the level of opposition increase proportionally. And here we're going to find Jesus speaking to this very issue, and we're calling this fighting against false accusations, or fighting against false conversions, shall we say. Let's stand and we're going to read this together. We're in John 8, fighting against false conversions. We're going we're gonna to actually begin in verse 30. We're going to get a running start into our text. This is where we left off last week. Follow along as, as we read. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. That sounds good, right? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Let's pray. Lord, we need grace this morning. We really do. Because these are some tough words. And they are, they are not just addressed to the irreligious or the people outside of the camp or people not in the church, Lord, they're, they're spoken to us. This is us, Lord. And we, we want your word to have its way. We want to rightly heed what your word is telling us to heed. And Lord, we want to run to you. We want to have true faith in you. I pray for every single person in this room. No one would, would walk out of this room deceived about who they are, about who you are, about the nature of belief. So, Lord, we're asking that you would do things by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let's jump right to it. Verse 30 says, many believed in him. And it's like a group of pastors that get together and talk about how many people came to Easter service. You will just not believe how many people came. How many people professed faith. How many people believed. Is that what Jesus, is that the way he responds to all of these people res, kind of seemingly responding to him? And I would say that there's every indication from this context in the text that this, in fact, is not genuine belief. These are not genuine believers. These are false believers. And there's, there's three reasons I want to mention quickly before we unpack the text of why I think that's the case. Number one, look at verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That word truly, it means really or authentically. And so Jesus seems to already be sort of throwing down the gauntlet to say, you're calling yourselves disciples, but let me give you the test of what it means to truly be a disciple. There are real disciples and not real disciples, seems to be his implication. A second reason I think these are not true believers is the way that Jesus refers to them as the text unfolds. Over the next two weeks, we're going to finish out John chapter 8, and in succession, Jesus refers to these very people, these very same people, by the following terms. He calls them, first of all, slaves. Next week, he calls them children of the devil. Then it's liars, and finally, murderers. No, parents, not the words of comfort you weren't, weren't spoken over your child at baptism, right? This is, this, is, this is not what you typically hear at a bar mitzvah. I mean, Jesus, they go from believing, and Jesus says, you're a son of the devil. You want to kill me. You, in fact, are a murderer. And we know this, I think, for the third reason, is that we've been down this road in John's gospel before, haven't we? That one of John's principal purposes in giving us this gospel is that we would know the difference in little b belief and capital B belief. Remember John 2, 23 through 24. Now when he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. There's that word again, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. In other words, these are folks, apparently, who were enamored with some part of Jesus's ministry, whether it was his healings or the signs or his great oracle um, skills. But it says that Jesus knew their hearts he knew what was really going on. They didn't love Jesus as much as they loved what Jesus did for them. And guys, that's a, that's a real danger in an affluent evangelical culture where we see that all that Jesus does for us, well, he's given us great friends and a good job and some money and a nice youth group and health and a doctor and all those sorts of things. And it's very easy to be deceived that the principal way God shows his love for me is by giving me stuff. That's not necessarily true, and often it's the opposite. And apparently that's what was going on with, with these people. But our text this morning is going to call us as professing believers to examine our relationship to Jesus and the way that we examine this relation our relationship to Jesus, the way our relationship with Jesus is to be measured is by our relationship to his word. Now I want you to notice the number of times Jesus references either the word or truth in this passage. He says, Abide in my word. My word finds no place in you. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. I think what Jesus is referring here is certainly to his teachings, absolutely. I think he's also referring to the Old Testament because before Jesus has already said the Old Testament is all about me. you got to believe that too. I think he's foreshadowing the time where he tells us that you need to believe in the apostles. See, after I'm gone, Jesus said, I'm going I'm to give it to the apostles to write down truth on my behalf. I think Jesus here is pointing to the totality of his word when he says, abide in my word. But I think fundamentally, when Jesus says, abide in my word, he's also, he's he's talking about himself. Remember from long ago in John 1, 1, where we learned that in the beginning was the what? Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, the word, this, points to the living word Jesus Christ and you can't now listen you cannot have one without the other now i'm going to i'm going to try to step on everybody's toes with this one okay let's try to, we're going to liberal and conservative alike so let's go let's go let's go with the liberal types first oftentimes in liberal circles it's very popular to say that Jesus stands above the word that what Jesus has to say is, is more important than what Paul has to say or what Peter has to say. Or you might have heard hear people who say, you know, we don't believe in a book. We don't worship a book. We worship Jesus. We, we, we believe in a person to which I think we can rightly say, but tell us about this Jesus. Who is this man? Where does he come from? How do we know about him, church? We know him where? Through his word. There is no mythical Jesus that stands outside of his word. A lot of times, it's, it's very tempting to say, Paul is saying something about this issue or that issue or men and women or sexuality, and because we don't like it or he doesn't jive with our cultural ears, then we're going to extrapolate and think about what Jesus might have said. Were he in a similar place, ignoring what Paul and Peter said? We can't have it. You don't know Jesus apart from his word. Bruh. For us conservative types, there's, there's, there's an equal and opposite error, though. We have to remember that the study of the Bible is not an end to itself. The study of God's Word is to lead us always, always to Jesus. Deeper communion of Him with Him. Deeper knowledge of Him. Deeper relationship with Him. I remember a lunch a long time ago. I was talking with a guy who said something like, you know, Pastor Paul, I I don't I just I'm community groups are not for me. Okay. They're just kind of goofy. And I said, well well tell me, tell me about this goofiness. And he said, you know, well people just say like the like dumb things and I just I just have a hard time being around people. But what I really want to do is teach theology. And I remember just sitting there thinking, there's a disconnect here. The synapses are not firing. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. Jesus and the Word cannot be separated. And so what we're going to find in this text is we're going to find two sorts of functions with God's Word. There's a, what I would kind of call an authenticating function and then a liberating function. And those are going to be our two points. Authentication and liberation. Okay, let's go to verse 31. Let's read this again. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. On that word abide, seems like a a deep religious word, abide. It it simply means to remain, to stay, to hold on to, to live in. Now, understand when this word is is much more than being merely about reading your bible although you can't abide in god's word and not read your bible but you need to understand that there are scholars theologians churchmen who spend their entire careers studying this it's their job it's their vocation and their ministry but they have never abided in god's word have a pastor friend who tragically took his own life. This was many years ago. He, he made his living in the gospel. He was a vocational pastor. And it came out after some years um, in his ministry that he was involved in a set of illicit relationships. And instead of sort of facing that and owning that and repenting from that and running to Jesus in that, he, he took his own life. He was not. He was studying. He was reading. He was composing. You know, he was doing devotionals, but he wasn't abiding in the word. So, what do we mean by abiding? It's I, I, here's here's a couple of ways to think about this. We abide in the word when the word is our controlling authority. We abide in the word when the when, when the Bible is our North Star. It's the place where we are always measuring ourselves and our actions according to it. Not according to what other people are doing or other standards or what this person says or that person says, but it's fundamentally our home base. I like to say there's, there's, there's sort of a gravitational pull always back to what does God's word say to me about this. And, and Jesus gives a real interesting picture of this in verse 37. He says, I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet to seek me, you seek to kill me. You know, listen to this, because my word finds no place in you. Literally, the word has no place to rest its head. The, the word is an unwelcome guest. In my heart, now growing up, now as I tell this story, it, it clearly is so dysfunctional now I, I, it 's it's plainly obvious, but then it seemed completely normal, but that, maybe that 's just because this was East Tennessee, but growing up, we had some neighbors who had some family members who would show up from time to time in their sort of their Chevy Chase Christmas Winnebago. do you know what i 'm saying, and they would sort of come and park i mean our, First of all, it wasn't even our neighborhood wasn't even big enough for the Winnebago, much less to house the Winnebago in the front yard of the person next door. And so, the, this 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 certain these certain family members of our neighbors would come, and they was sort of they weren't guests; they were squatters. You know the difference, right? They 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 like set up shop, ate their meals, slept. I mean, the whole the whole kit and caboodle way overstayed their welcome, and it was just a it was a massive deal. And so, our neighbors decided that. The next time they were set to come, these, 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 relatives, they were just going to pretend not to be home. And, and they asked our permission to hide out at our house while the people came. <laughs> and for some reason, we all agreed that this was a wonderful idea. And so I remember the Winnebago pulling up and all the kids were in the backyard looking around the corner and, and all these sorts of things because they weren't welcome. It'd be fine if you're a guest. But not if don't try to make yourself to be part of the family. See, and, and that's that's what Jesus is getting at here. See, the word is either going to be a temporary guest, or they're going to or it's going to be a permanent member of our family. Now understand something. It's not always easy being a family, is it? There's all sorts of demands placed upon us. And sacrifices. And we have to serve each other and give and take and work out conflict and, you know, and wrestle through sorts of things. But at the end of the day, we always know that, that family members are welcome. Is, is the word more like a family member for you that has a home? Or are they sort of a okay guest where everything is cool until the word overstays its welcome until the word makes a demand that i just cannot accept what's your fundamental posture to the word of god it seems to be that jesus says this is the this isn't like like optional checkbox for what it means to be a christian He's saying, this is what a Christian does. This is who a Christian is. And that, now understand, it doesn't mean that there aren't areas of struggle. It doesn't mean that sometimes the, word, the last thing you want is that word setting up shop in your heart and telling you how to spend your money or why you need to stay in your marriage or why you don't need to gossip about that person or why you need to be involved in the local church or whatever. I understand that it's not that there's not areas of struggle or, or areas of massive failure. We think about King David. He said, I don't want the word set up shot telling me about get governing my sexual ethics. I'm going to do what I want to do. But when he was confronted, what did he do? The word had a gravitational pull on his heart. What about you? First John 1:6, you know, John, by the way, the author of this gospel, wrote three epistles, and they are mainly devoted to this very issue. That's how important this issue is of our relationship to God's Word and it being a barometer of the authenticity of our profession of faith. First John 1 John 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2.4. Whoever says, oh, I know him. I know him. I believe. But does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I still remember on on the 80s kick today for some reason, but I still remember the lock-in that that I went to in the early 80s. And and by the way, lock-ins are the single biggest reason why I left student ministries. Okay, I just want you to know that. They should be outlawed in all forms. But I remember going to this lock-in and and the pastor was talking about the fact that there are three kinds of people there are Christians, there are non Christians, and there's something that he called carnal Christians. And a carnal Christian was someone who professed Jesus, but just didn't live like a Christian. And the idea was, don't be a carnal Christian, to which I thought to myself, now, why not? Because being a carnal Christian sounds pretty cool. I can like do what I want to do. I can obey what I want to obey. God will forgive me whenever he forgives me. And like, I mean, come on, that's like a pretty sweet deal. And I'm going to heaven. Why, why would I not want to be a carnal Christian? Because I think the answer to that is, that is a fiction. That is a fiction. Being a disciple is what a Christian is by definition, there are no three tiers to Christianity. I'm a new believer, and then I become a disciple, and then I become a mature Christian. No, no, no. Jesus says there are disciples, and then there are non-Christians. Truly my disciple, really my disciple. And again, it's, again, a reminder that biblical faith is not, not just about intellectual affirmation, although it is about that but it's fundamentally about a moral commitment. What is the North Star of my life? So I think if we can begin to wrap our minds around what Jesus is saying, it's actually very freeing. It's very clarifying when we think about a whole host of issues in our life, whether it's what's going on with my child right now. And sometimes it just helps us say, my child just needs Jesus fundamentally they just don't know jesus and they need the gospel we need to we need to bring the gospel to bear we need to show the love of christ we ought we need to quit expecting things to not be this way they're just actually very consistent with what we see about their hearts it can be very helpful when we hear statistics and these have always driven me crazy and you've heard them too Christians and non-Christians are involved in the same percentage of illicit activity. Christians and non-Christians are involved, have the same levels of divorce, the same levels of adultery. You've heard this, right? Let me just tell you, I don't believe that at all. And, and And I'll tell you why. Anyone, anyone on a survey, in front of a computer screen, on a telephone call can say, I'm a Christian and I this and I that. But Jesus says there is, there's a much higher standard here. If, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, let me, let me say that. I said this at the first service. I'm right now so tempted to try to qualify everything I just said. <laughs> I'm so tempted to say, but it's by grace and it's by mercy and and. You know, you don't earn your salvation, and the Word authenticates your faith. It doesn't, it doesn't, you're not saved by your obedience, and all that is true. All that is true. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. And when we qualify everything that we say, we end up oftentimes saying nothing at all. And so I just think God wants us to let that sit and rest for a minute. The Word authenticates And lastly, the Word liberates. Look back at the text, verse 32. If you abide in my Word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now understand who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jews who who believe it is their divine right as the people of God to, be, to have primo status above every other ethnicity and nation in the world. They are children of Abraham. Freedom, spiritual freedom, was theirs by birthright. And they are absolutely offended at this. And you can see the way they respond, verse 33. Free us. Free us. We're not anybody's slaves. We're children of Abraham." And even, and, and, and even if the fact that the Romans, we're, we're prisoners of the Romans right now, understand something, God will vindicate us. This is, just God's, this is just God's disciplining hand on us, but we know one day he will come and wipe these folks out because we, we are the people of God. Well, interesting how Jesus responds to this, to this level of, of reasoning. And some of you might be there this morning, you might be like, who is this guy to tell us we may not know who Jesus is? Jesus is, is, is intentionally provoking here. But what does Jesus say? He says, verse 34, essentially, don't be deceived. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Well, that's interesting. See, our idea of freedom is it not, is that I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, that I can manage my life free of all responsibilities and encumbrances, that is freedom. In fact, anything that might hinder my personal development or identity, whether it's a baby in the womb or a spouse I no longer want or um, an income tax bracket I don't want to be a part of anymore, the amount of taxes I want to pay the government. It's coming up, April 15th, we get it. Whatever, whatever that thing is, I want to be free. And Jesus says that is a fiction. That is a fiction. Because whether we know it or not, every single one of us is enslaved to something. Something. As Bob Dylan said, we we are all going to serve somebody, which is, and and whether that service comes to our job or to our spouse or to our wallet or to our addictions or, or fill in the blank, whatever that thing is for you, whatever that thing is that you love, that's the thing that you serve. And by the way, that's the way God made us. God made us that way. God made us that we are designed to be sort of tethered to him. We are are designed, we are created to be bound to him. And we know that unless our soul finds satisfaction in him, nothing else will satisfy. And so the guy who says, Pastor Paul, I am totally free I'm involved in illicit relationships, and I look at pornography, and it's all about all about me and indulging myself. Jesus actually says, "That person is enslaved." That person is, look, 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 look at the terms he uses. He, he uses an interesting analogy. Slave versus son, verse 35. I'll, re- I'll read that again. It says, "The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever." Now understand something, even though the slavery of the ancient Greco-Roman world was, was not identical to the slavery that we experience in America, it was nonetheless not the most desirable state, even though there were certainly many benefits to being a slave. There was a roof over your head, there was food on the table, there was familial relationships, you got to live to live in the household. A lot of temporal benefits. But here was the fundamental problem. Every slave knew that at any time, at a moment's notice, with, with no warning whatsoever, it could all change, right? They could be sold to another master. They could be traded for another slave. Their families, their marriages, their children, they could be all sent to different parts of the, of the empire, And so while they were enjoying the temporal benefits of being a part of the household, they weren't true sons. See, because true sons never have to worry about being sold. True sons never have to worry about about being separated from their family. Only slaves do. See, isn't that just the way sin works? Isn't that just the way sin works? Where there's, there's, there's something... And you see this over and over and over again in the lives of public figures and others that things appear to be this, but in reality, they're really that. And when you hear people talk about this afterwards, they, they, they will tell you, I know I was skating on thin ice. I knew it was going to end. I, I knew that, that I was on this ride and it was only temporary. But I, but I loved what the temporal benefits brought. I loved the, the taste of sin in that moment. And I was just going to ride it until I reached the shore. And I knew that day would come, but I just didn't want to imagine it would be now. In fact, they thought they were free, but what? They were truly enslaved. We're all going to be enslaved to something, but what is that something for you? Second Peter says this, For whatever overcomes a person... To that he is enslaved. Folks, God offers us an amazing exchange this morning. It's an amazing exchange. He says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come and I'm going to take the penalty of your sin, the penalty, the the burden of what it means to be a slave. I'm going to take that upon me so that you can be free. And you're going to find your freedom, not out there doing what you want, screwing your life up in heaven knows how many ways, but you're going to find your freedom in knowing and walking with me. Because I am the God of the universe, and I care for you, and I love you. And the parameters and the rules and the strictures that I put around your life are not because I don't love you or because I'm trying to restrict your your freedom, I'm just trying to keep you from spiritually killing yourself. But come and know me, rest in me. And you know, and some of you who are believers and have walked with the Lord for a season, you know this to be true. Is it not, I mean, is, is a clear conscience not the most liberating thing? That when you are walking in the light of the gospel, and and not that you're perfect or not that you're sinning, not that you're not sinning, but your north star is God's word. You're coming to him. You're saying, God, my life belongs to you. Just tell me what you want me to do. Speak, this, speak your truth into my heart and I will obey it. Even if I don't want to obey it right now, I want to want to obey it. And when you're walking in clear conscience, following Jesus Christ and his word and obedience. is there, there is not a more liberating feeling in the entire world. It's, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I offer you that in me. Now, let me say, say this, folks. We're going to In a future time, and probably at Easter this year, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this from an evangelistic standpoint, about what it means to be free from slavery and sin, to be liberated in in Jesus Christ. But let me just tell you, regardless of what front your friends, family, relatives, neighbors, co-workers put up, this is the core issue in their life. Who are they going to serve? Be thinking about that Sunday it's coming up in 6 weeks who am i inviting who needs to hear this message who needs the grace of god who needs to be liberated from from their sin be begin praying for that person but let me end by saying today by saying this we need a new master you need a new master and jesus offers himself up and he he doesn't Yeah, he asked you to to die to yourself to pick up your cross and to follow him, but guess what? He died to himself. He took up his cross so that we could find freedom in him. Do you know this Jesus? Do you abide in the word of this Jesus? This Jesus offers himself for you today. Let's pray.